Thank you for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. For those who haven't yet heard, we've finally made our move into our new home in central Missoula. We'd love to see you Sunday mornings at 2010 3rd Avenue West and hope you're blessed by this online resource. But let's pray once more. Lord Jesus, um, everything you ask of us, you provide to us in the gospel. There's no story more fitting for this provision than what was just read for us. And as we consider the promises and presence of this Christmas season, Lord, we ask that above all things, you would direct our hearts to the promise and the present of Jesus Christ, which restores us to you in a real presence through the power of the Holy Spirit so that we might be a people changed for your good and for the good of others around us. We pray this in your name. Amen. So my minivan is promised to have the ability to stop from 60 miles per hour in 130 feet. My wedding ring is promised to snap or break if it's caught in a saw and not crush my finger if it's pinned in a moving piece. The safety bars at my gym are promised to withhold dropping weights of 800 pounds. And what do all these promises have in common? I hope to never have to trust in any one of them. And in the season of Advent, we reflect on the promised birth of Jesus Christ. But have you ever stopped to consider your relationship to promises? Promises from your spouse, from scripture, or in the world in general? You see, even if they aren't as significant or outrageous as the promises I just read for us, we naturally temper our expectations when it comes to promises, don't we? When you buy something that has a lifetime warranty, none of us actually think it's a lifetime warranty. We interpret it in our minds, and this is what it means. This is a quality product that will last a good time, and if it does break, you'll spend the rest of your life with customer support trying to get a replacement. We change things. We interpret them through our experiences. See, naturally, we love a promise, but rarely are our lives shaped authentically by a promise. If you're a sports fan, we're in the throes of coaching change season. And even though college football or professional coaches have contracts, promises made to their team, those last only until a better option provides itself. And then they break their promise and leave. We keep our old cell phones as fallbacks, even if we've just purchased a new one that's promised to work faster and, ask, and, and uh, last longer. We're not quite able to let it go. Remarkably, divorce rates are at a historic low in the United States, but so are marriage rates. We are losing the ability to trust in the power of a promise. It doesn't take a sociologist or a PhD in, in uh, culture to, to know why this is happening. In fact, God's word, what was just read for us, explains to us why this happens. You see, there are two problems. Externally, our world makes promises that are endless, trying to compete with the failure of promises that didn't last. The hope of human disappointment is endless, And so as one promise fails, another, seemingly more outlandish, seemingly more desperate, replaces it. But then also there's an internal problem. And that is the problem of sin. That even inside of us, our hearts are stricken with the disease of unbelief and faithlessness. And the story that we're going to examine today is another birth in the Bible's Old Testament, which is our theme this Advent season, that helps us understand and locate the significance of the birth of Jesus, and the hopes of our own lives. It's a story which ties a seemingly unbelievable promise with the constant temptation of unbelief 
itself. If you're unfamiliar with the story of scripture, what we're reading today is the story of God's promise to bring Abraham, even in his old age, with a barren wife, a son, and through that son will be a promise just as wild, in fact, even more outlandish than all of the crazy infomercials you've seen on TV. Is that a dying reference? Are infomercials like going away? Are kids gonna grow up and have any idea what those are? I don't know. We could talk about this later. But... Despite the integrity of the promise maker, being God himself, Abraham wrestles to actually live his life in reality of this promise at a consistent basis. And as you've already heard read for us this morning, perhaps you've realized something that seems barbaric and even scandalous to our modern minds. We see a father seemingly willing to sacrifice his own son. But as we'll see over the course of our time today, this is not a statement on the character of Abraham or of God in the way we would expect it to be. In fact, it's quite opposite a statement of their character. And instead, it's a statement of the nature of our problem. The problem of sin is severe. Our unbelief is only finally dealt with when it itself is put to death. And it's in the midst of this unbelievable darkness that the promise of the gospel uh, affects real change in the life of God's people. And this is what we're going to look at today in the story of Abraham and Isaac. And our main point is going to be simply this. Jesus is the promise that finally changes our life. There are promises abounding in our society, but here's one that changes things. And we're going to examine this by looking broadly at the events recorded in 10 chapters of Genesis, Genesis 12 through 22. But we're going to have just three quick pit stops along the way. First, we're going to see that God's promise is the revelation of amazing grace. Second, we're going to see that man's problem is unbelief. And lastly, we're going to notice that God's provision is the sacrifice for faith. So those are longer titles. If you're a note taker, they'll be up on the screen later. So don't panic yet. But to begin, would you read with me Genesis 12, if you have a Bible, Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. It says this, Now the Lord said to Abram, and so that's the name, Abraham's, his name will be changed to Abraham later in the story, and we'll see that. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so here we see our first point today and that is that God's promise is the revelation of amazing grace. I'm sure you've heard that famous song. You kids, do you kids know the song Amazing Grace? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And what we just read in Genesis 12 is the conductor's wand of the amazing grace that follows the symphony of scripture to its end. Because what we know about Abraham up until this point is that there's nothing remarkable about him. If you're wondering, if you missed anything, if this is the superhero origin story of Abraham, what is the remarkable nature behind his birth? There's nothing. We've seen remarkable characters already in the story of scripture. Abraham didn't offer a pure and sincere sacrifice like Abel. He wasn't a bastion of righteousness alone in a wicked world like Noah. He didn't even care for or cover the sins of others like Shem and Japheth. He didn't translate the Bible. He didn't fill his Awana badges with memorized scripture. He didn't pray seven times a day. 
All we know about Abraham is that he and his family set as a goal to travel to Canaan. And they settled for some reason, be it apathy or hardship, halfway there in the land of Haran. And secondly, we know that he's from the line of Seth. And that is significant. Because if you're with us last week, it's from the line of Seth that God promised to redeem his creation and restore the Garden of Eden after sin broke it. It's from the line of Seth that the serpent crusher and the restorer of all things, Eve's promised offspring, would come. And this is actually how each of us are to understand God's grace. It is never based off what we've done or who we are. Grace is never by merit, but only by mercy. God didn't choose Abraham because Abraham was the man of promise. But God chose to Abraham, calling him to, if you see repeated words in that text, blessing, blessing, and blessing, because God is the God of promise. God's promise here, given by mercy to a man who is wandering and content in his own world, is so compelling that Abraham leaves his entire world behind to go to a place that God will show him. And if you have this text open in front of you in these three short verses, you can see three remarkable things about God's promise. First, God promises him prosperity. Abraham will become a great nation. God will bless him and make his name great. Secondly, God promises him security. God will bless those who bless him. It will be advantageous for the whole world to bless Abraham. And those who dishonor him, those who come against him, God himself will curse him. And then lastly, God promises him a sort of transformative charity. Abraham's promise will be the hope of all who are around him. Things will flow from Abraham that the world will desire and Abraham will not be stingy, but will give that blessing. It is enough not only for him, but for all in some degree here in scripture. The nations will come to him in an idea of transformative charity. This promise is significant to Abraham. In fact, it's repeated twice more in the book of Genesis. Once in Genesis 15, where God says to Abraham, I will be your shield and continues to promise security. And once more at length, if you have your Bible open, you could flip open to Genesis chapter 17. We'll look at the first eight verses there. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham for I have made you a father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. And so what we see here, rearticulated and expanded, that kings will come from Abraham's line. Blessing will come and central to that blessing is that he will be Their God, God, Yahweh, will be Abraham's God. And he will bring them back to the land, the land that Abraham actually stopped short of. All of our human efforts never get us where we want to go. But by God's grace, he brings us to places we never dreamt possible. It will be a land secured beautifully by the power of God himself. And you see, some of us, the gospel comes as it came to Abraham. It reveals to us needs that we never knew we had. 
Abraham had a barren wife, and this was probably his biggest felt need. But on the most part, he seemed to be doing just fine. He settled. He had his family. Life seemed to be going good. There's not some dark story underneath what's going on in Genesis chapter 12. But God showed up, and God revealed to him that there was far more to life than worldly contentment. For many of us, we are content in thinking that the world has provided our needs in full. Prime has two-day delivery. Uber Eats can drop off Chick-fil-A from the other end of town. What could be better? But when God reveals to us the promise of his blessing, of intimacy with him, we realize that all of our hopes in this world were nothing compared to the reality of the hopes we have in God that we were made to desire far more. Life might be good, but life is better with the promise of God. For others of us, we're overwhelmed at the needs in our life. We're crippled by fear. We're paralyzed by the weight of mattering things. We're stricken by the anxiety of hopelessness. We scratch and we claw, not out of a sense of delusionary contentment, but out of a desperate and fearful reality where one, like Abraham, is content until the revelation of grace comes and lights a fire for something more. For the rest of us, we know something is drastically wrong and we are fearful, anxious, and ever working to fix something that we can't seem to fix on our own. The gospel awakens some to needs never known and the gospel comforts some with needs never revealed or relieved in the world. And this is where the gospel is a revelation to all of us. It is God's grace to come into whatever your heart is wrestling with and to show you that there is something more and something safe. And so what would happen when a promise this profound, regardless of who you are and what the trials are in your life came to you, what would change? What if just this moment, right now, if I said to each of you, as God promised to Abraham, that everything I'm about to promise you is going to come true? What if I said, for you, I'll drop interest rates. Go and put that down payment. Watch your buying power explode. Just for you. Or for you, I promise to double your salary this year. I promise to put you in the position of influence that you've always wanted so you can implement the change that you've so desperately wanted to see in the workplace, in the family, in the world. You see, even though it doesn't come through paychecks and picket fences, this side of glory, God's promise of blessing in the free gift of Jesus Christ is far more than all of those things. Those things and their reward end at the grave, but the promise of Christ is life and life eternally. How much more might God's promise to save us from our sins, to give us the righteousness of Jesus Christ, to change us into ambassadors of mercy, how much more would that change your hopes and your affections? You see, the gospel is God's revelation. Apart from it, we are destined to either settle for less or suffer under more, and the end of both is judgment. But here, in the promise of God revealed to us, in the promise of God that breaks into human history, in the promise of God's desire to bless and redeem those who once were lost, is the hope of being found in the promise of God. But just like you might have, Abraham ran into a problem. And the problem was this, that everything that God promised, all of the blessing, all of the beauty, all of the security, all of the transformative charity was contingent on one thing, a child. But Abraham was old and Sarah was barren. 
Time went by and his wife couldn't conceive a child. And here we see the problem we face, and that is the problem of man's unbelief. You see, the story of Abraham will show us that even though he was moved by the promise, he wrestled at every turn to actually live in light of it. He wanted to trust it as his own mind would see it, but not as God himself gave it. You see, right after God articulates his promise for the first time in Genesis 12, Abraham sojourns, God brings him to Egypt. And he gets to Egypt, and Abraham has this revelation. My wife is really beautiful. That's good. I hope all of you husbands have that revelation. But then he's like, Pharaoh will see my beautiful wife. He's a powerful man without any God, and he will want her. When he sees I'm her husband, he will kill me and take my wife. And so what does he do? He says, the Lord promised to be my shield. He promised to curse those who cursed me. He promised me offspring. Therefore, I could trust the Lord with anything that happened. Sarah, be my wife. No, he panics. And he says, hey, Sarah, act like you're my sister. But she's like, won't Pharaoh still take me? He's like, yeah, he might still take you, but he won't kill me. Isn't that great? And so that's what happens. He goes into Egypt. He says, if God's gonna promise me an offspring, I better protect my own life, even if it costs me my wife. But what does God do? He remarkably intervenes. He reveals himself to Pharaoh and Pharaoh returns Sarah to Abraham untouched. Certainly, Abraham and Sarah learn their lesson. God is faithful to his promise. By the time Genesis 15 rolls around and God articulates his promise for a second time, this time to be his shield, Abraham should have said, absolutely, I just saw it in Egypt. I just went toe-to-toe with the most powerful government in the world. I am certain that there is nothing stronger in life than God's promise to me. But look at what happens in Genesis 15, verses one and six. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So what happens in Genesis 15? God comes, he reaffirms his promise. And what does Abraham do? He looks at his old age. He examines his barren wife and he says, oh Lord, will you take Eliezer? Just a member of my household, a male member of my household. Just take him. If you take Eliezer, let all the promises come through him and everything will work. But what does God say? He says, it will not be that man. It will be your very own son. And he takes him outside and he shows him the stars and he says, whenever you see these stars, Remember that that's as certain and as bountiful as my promise is to you. And Abraham believed. It was counted to him as righteousness. The problem had been solved until Genesis 16 comes around. And in Genesis 16, Sarah herself begins to panic regarding the promise. So in order to secure the promise out of her barrenness, she gives Abraham her maidservant, Hagar. And what's happening here? Abraham and Sarah see God's promise to do all these great things to to them, all these great things even to the world. But they look at their barrenness and say, maybe God needs a little bit of help. Maybe I need to take matters into my own hand. Maybe God didn't consider how biology works. And so Abraham sleeps with Hagar, 
she conceives. And this sin of adultery doesn't bring blessing, doesn't bring flourishing. In fact, it nearly tears the family apart. For many of us, it's not that we don't believe that God wants what's best for us. He's God, certainly he does. But sometimes, somehow, we begin to think that our sin might actually help us get what God himself promised. We justify sin in the name of the promise of God. But sin never pays. God doesn't need your sin to fulfill his promise. And this is seen remarkably in that even though Hagar and Ishmael are just pawns and and sinned against in this battle for faith, God enters into their loneliness and into their brokenness. And even though it's distinct from the promise made to Abraham and Isaac, God promises security for Hagar and Ishmael. God made a promise even to an illegitimate child. Won't he keep his promise to Abraham and Sarah? Did the pain of this sin finally click in Abraham's mind? God appears to him again in Genesis 17, verses 15 through 18. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. And said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael, that is the child born of Hagar and Abraham, that he might live before you. God said, no, but Sarah, your wife shall bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. And Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. And so now God is either sovereign or he's stupid. He's either stupid because he's beginning to name names and dates or he's sovereign and is able to control the names and the dates and the babies and the wombs and the future. He just said there's a time frame next year. He says, Abraham, it's gonna be Sarah, not Hagar. It's gonna be Isaac, not Ishmael. They'll have a promise. You'll have an eternal covenant, a covenant forever. And then finally, look at what happens in Genesis chapter 21, verses one through five. And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. When Abraham was a hundred years old, or Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. So did you notice, again, repeated words, helpful in studying the Bible, this makes a really terrible, if you turn this into your English teacher, they'll be like, we get it. He was born to Sarah. If you look at Genesis 22, one through seven, those seven verses, the word born or son is used 10 times. It's entirely redundant. So either God is a terrible writer or he's making a point that unto you a son was born, just as I said. 
God kept his word. Born to him from Sarah was Isaac. Though it seemed long, it was exactly when God appointed it. The promise was never in doubt. Not in Egypt, not in Eleazar, not in Ishmael, not in Sarah's barrenness. It was never in doubt. And now the world has hope. You and I have hope. We are the nations. We are the ones who in some remarkable way are going to enter into this eternal covenant blessing with Abraham. Here it is, blessing had come. Everything Adam had hoped for, everything the watching world was finally longing for had finally come to fruition in the birth of Isaac. Isaac was here, the covenant was moving, blessing was imminent. But notice what happens in Genesis 22 verses one and two. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now as readers, what hope do we have in Abraham at this moment in time? It took nothing for Abraham to cave in Egypt. It took nothing for him to offer up Eliezer. It took nothing for him to sleep with Hagar. It took nothing for him to offer up Ishmael. At each moment of the slightest challenge to the promise of God, he sent back the fullness of a lack of faith. And now he finally has the son, the promised son, and he's asked to sacrifice him? But what would we expect Abraham to do? Let's read on verses three through eight. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and he saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father, he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. Do you see how remarkable this scene is in the context of what we just read of Abraham's history? Despite God's call for him to sacrifice Isaac, did you see what he told his young men in verse five? Look back, look at verse five. He says, I and the boy will come back to you again. He didn't make any excuses. He didn't cheat the system, but somehow he's beginning to trust in the promise against belief. He's believing against what God is saying. He's saying that God will meet that demand somehow. And then Isaac asks as they climb, and what does God say? Or what does Abraham say? God will provide himself a lamb for the burnt offering, my son. You see, the question of how plagues our minds just as often as it plagued Abraham. We see the promise of God and our question is always what? How? How will you keep that if I have to do this? How will you keep that if this is what stands against me? How will I live if Pharaoh likes my wife? 
How can I have a blessing if God won't accept Eliezer? How will I have an offspring if I don't sleep with Hagar? But here, Abraham throws the question of how on the very altar he's about to build. He doesn't know how, but he knows his God. And he's beginning to see that God is faithful. How far will this go? Continue reading verses 9 and 10. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Here, constantly fickle and flighty Abraham extended his knife over his son, trembling, terrified, but trusting. How? How did we get here? How might God get you there to a place where the promise shapes your life? I mentioned last week that the world only seeks to condemn you based on your past, and that's partly true. Our pasts are bad. (laughs) We are sinful. We are broken. We are wicked. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus takes all of our condemnation. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And when Jesus takes our condemnation, he instead gives us gracious correction when it comes to our past. And what did Abraham see in his past? Yes, he saw his failings. But what else did he see? He saw God was faithful in Egypt. He saw God's promise even to Hagar in Ishmael. He saw God's provision to give him a son when he was 100 and his wife was 90. In chapter 21, which we won't look at today, is a striking parallel to what is happening on this mountain. Hagar and Ishmael get sent out to the desert. Ishmael is about to die and they're preparing for his death and God reveals himself from an angel and provides water to deliver Hagar and Ishmael. If God miraculously provided provision to keep his promise to the illegitimate son, how much more will God provide miraculous provision to provide for the son of covenant promise? You see, the eyes of faith begin to look back at a past which seems like only failures and instead begins to see God's faithfulness behind it all. God's faithfulness is always meant to lead us to today. Did you know that? That right now, what we just read is not mere religious literature. This is human history. This is God's faithfulness in space-time, just like you. You are no more smarter or no more privileged than Abraham was at that time. If you think that technology like Twitter makes us smarter, you've obviously never used Twitter. But right now, God's faithfulness is calling you to act in relationship to who you think God is and if you think his word is good. How many times in our life do we say, I would obey, I would put this sin to death, I would go, but if I would, I would lose blank. Abraham says, I would lose my son. We might say, I will lose opportunity. I will lose free time. I will lose comfort. I will lose respect. Would you hope in this promise that all of human history has led up to in this moment? And if you did, what would happen to the child of blessing, 
the very child that you're being called to sacrifice through whom God has promised blessing. God continues in history, 22, verses 11 through 14. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, do you hear the repetition, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. God provided according to his promise. He provided against hope according to his promise. You see, there's a drastic drama in this text, and it's the drama that plays out in each and every one of our hearts on a daily level. In order for God to keep his promise to bless Abraham and save the world, the same promise he made to Adam and Eve, the promise that an offspring of Eve would crush the head of the serpent, Isaac needed to live. But in order for Abraham's faith to be sincere faith, fearful faith, in order for Abraham to be delivered from faithlessness, Isaac needed to die. Abraham needed to be weaned off the hope of promises less than God and of power less than grace. It was insurmountable by human effort or human wisdom. But it happened by God's miraculous provision. In order for God's blessing to flow to the nations, what needed to die on that mountain was not Isaac, but instead Abraham's unbelief. And this is our final point this morning, that God's provision is the sacrifice for faith. God's provision is the sacrifice for faith. On that mountain, Abraham saw with exclusivity that the promise of God is worth every bit of our faith, not only the easy and simple parts. It's easy to accept promises of God when it seems in line with what our eyes see. But when it begins to become things that only God can do, our fearful hearts doubt that because it doesn't make sense according to us. But this world needs something better than our sense. Our sense has solved nothing. Modernity has done nothing. And the problem remains. And yet Abraham overcomes it here. And while he overcame it, even with Isaac, this battle of faith and unbelief waged on. In Isaac's offspring, Israel, and the 12 tribes, the holistic people of Israel, on every page of the Old Testament, some are faithful, and then they're not. And then some are trusting, and then they're not. And what happens when they trust, they flourish. When they run to idols, they suffer. But one day, things changed. One day, the promise that seemed fickle and elusive and not able to remain was drastically provided in another way. In the Gospel of Matthew, notice how Matthew introduces Jesus Christ. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then he begins the genealogy. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. 
And then the father of this and the father of that and the father of this. And then we get to verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. Jesus is the son of Abraham through whom all the promises are finally and fully met. Jesus is the one who was faithful to believe under all circumstances. Look at how Paul speaks of this in Galatians 3, verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ? Yes, it was to Isaac. But behind Isaac stood the promise of Christ. Jesus is the offering, or Jesus is the offspring of Isaac, who is the one in whom we find our prosperity, our security, and the charity of grace to the nations. Jesus is your promise better than Isaac, better than all the promises of man given in the Old Testament, where man could not keep it, where man could not earn it, where man could not protect it, where man could not dwell securely, where man could not naturally produce that charity. Jesus is the one. Where Isaac still wrestled, Jesus was faithful. Where Isaac was spared for the sake of the promise, Jesus was sacrificed for the sake of the promise. Jesus is not only the child of promise, but Jesus is also the child of sacrifice, the ram of sacrifice that Isaac never was. You see, Isaac trusted in his father on that altar. He's old enough to know what's going on, and yet there's No resistance. He's not running. He's not breaking his bonds. There is a weird trust in Isaac that this can't possibly happen. He knows the covenant himself. Isaac trusted in his father on that altar and he was spared so that Abraham might pass the test of faith. Jesus trusted in his father and was the willing sacrifice so that you might pass the test of faith. You see, unbelief and death would reign supreme until a suitable sacrifice was made. And it was the sacrifice of Jesus that saves us from unbelief. It's the promise of Jesus that shows us the beauty of the external promise of blessing, that there would be restoration, that all the promises our world attempts to offer are finally and fully found in Jesus Christ. But it's also the promise of Jesus that deals with the internal problem of sin in our hearts. The gospel opens our eyes to see the promise of God and to believe it with firmness of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the firstborn who is both the son of promise and the lamb of sacrifice. Our problem to believe God's promise to save us from our sins and bless us in Jesus is not a problem of God's weakness. It's not even a problem of God's delay, that the promise hasn't fully been come now, that we're waiting for the kingdom to come in the future. Our problem is not with God. Our problem is that our hearts are prone to disbelieve, to compromise, and to accept promises on our own terms. How often do we, like Abraham, say, I know you've promised to accept me as a blameless child of God through the work of Jesus, but I have this conflict with my coworker. If you would just accept this and bring peace here, if you would take this unity I'm striving for, then I will have your blessing in all of my life. How many of us say, I know you've promised to give me perfect intimacy with you and with the church through the blood of Jesus Christ, but this singleness or this marriage is just too hard. If you would just accept this one relationship piece, everything else is fine. Just give me this this one thing. If you just give me your blessing in this one place, then I know I have your blessing. 
Then we've reached it. Then, then I'll be charitable to the nations. Then I will trust in your security. Then blessing will abound. I know you've promised me joy in freedom from sin. You've promised me joy in pursuits of holiness. But if you would just accept instead the success of my family, that we look like the family we're supposed to, the kids are good at sports and the house is neat and put in order, or that I would get that promotion at work, if you could just give me that one thing, if you would accept this one offering from me, if you would just take my help, your promise will flourish. But the only substitute for the promise is the substitute of Jesus. None of our idols, none of our compromises will get us there. We must trust the provision of God in Jesus and that alone. You see, the birth and near sacrifice of Isaac showed us in the life of Abraham that even up to death, we can trust in the promise of God. But the birth and actual sacrifice of Jesus shows us that we can trust in the promise of God even unto death. Our faith pushes us to raise our knives against our idols when the world calls us to raise our fists against God. It beckons you in a desperate reliance to say, the Lord will provide. And I know he will because he has sent his son. Now, if we're honest, can't we all look back at our life and see those lapses of faith? We kind of squint as Abraham would when reading his own history and say, my life has not been shaped by this promise. We could look back and see places where we chose the promise of pornography, the promise of popularity, the promise of profit as a supplement to the promise of God. But despite all we saw in Abraham, look at what's said of Abraham. This same Abraham, all the things we just read about Abraham. Look at what Paul says of him in Romans 4, verses 18 through 25. In hope, he, that's Abraham, believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justifications. You see, the whole history of Abraham is rewritten here. Why? Because of the promise of faith. Because there came a point where the remnant of the smallest faith in God allowed him to set apart the doubt he had in the promise and instead trust the man who stood behind it. And if we do that, if you do that today, if you place your trust in Jesus Christ, if you see him as the sufficient and exclusive source of God's promise, if you confess your need for him, that commitment will not only rewrite your history out of condemnation and into Jesus' righteousness, but that promise will take you places you've never dreamed as you find God more faithful than you've ever imagined. The knife our hand will hold will be firm and we will slay our idols 
and sacrifice our time knowing that nothing can stop the promise of God. The promise of confession, repentance, and reliance upon God might seem totally unfitting to you given the challenges of the world. This won't work. We live in a modern world. We live in a fast-paced time. We live in a me-driven society. This is old. This is antiquated. This is outdated. I want God, but maybe he needs my help. But it's exactly confession, repentance, and reliance upon Jesus, which provides for us everything we need to be saved by his prosperity, protected by his security, and transformed by his charity. What stood out to me as Marshall read this passage earlier is that in this story, we are neither Abraham nor are we Isaac. We are the one that Abraham said, stay there with the donkey and I'll go deal with it. Jesus has done on that mountain with God the Father everything we need to worship and trust him. May that promise shape our life in ways we could only hope. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, give us an experience of faithfulness in the gospel. Help us to see that not only is the promise of Jesus better than the promise made to Isaac as it is the promise in its fullness, but let us see that Jesus is the sacrifice better than a ram, greater than a placeholder to provide faith to one man. It is the sufficient sacrifice to provide faith to all who would believe and to believe enduringly. Lord, forgive us where we have offered up another. Forgive us where we try to supplement your, pro- your promise and to answer problems by our own power instead of by trusting in your provision. Make us a people not only saved and satisfied in Jesus, but shaped by Jesus as we risk it all, knowing that God will provide. Amen.